Welcome to the Teaching Behavior Together podcast, where I provide you with actionable steps for making your classroom management plan effective by incorporating behavioral and social-emotional learning activities into your daily teaching. Hi, I'm Maria, and I have 10 years experience in the field of behavior analysis. In each episode, I will be providing you with effective and evidence-based strategies you can use to create a classroom environment you want to go to each morning. No longer will you be driving home in tears over the overwhelming feeling of trying to manage student behaviors. So sit back, listen up, and start seeing success. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Teaching Behavior Together podcast. Today, we have Cassie from Adventures in Behavior here to talk all about ABA and academics and how she uses ABA to teach different academics in her classroom. So let's just get right into it. All right, so we're just going to get right into the episode. I have Cassie here from Adventures in Behavior, and we're going to be talking all about how we utilize the principles of ABA and different instructional techniques and academics in the classroom. So Cassie, you just want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, My name is Cassie Lutenager. I am um, a board-certified behavior analyst and special education teacher. Uh, I work with middle school students in uh, what's called a functional academics program. So um, my students um, are 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, and um, they all um, have functional communication skills. They've mastered um, toileting and hygiene and some of those basic life skills, and we're working more on those functional academics. Awesome. So can you explain a little bit like what functional academics really means? Sure. So um, our students are learning to read and do math, but in a way that applies to life skills. So, you know, when we're learning about fractions, we're learning about cooking and, you know, converting fractions in a recipe. So applying the skills to something that's really meaningful and, and they'll use within the real world. Awesome. And how long have you been in a classroom like this? This is my second year in this classroom. Prior to this, I was a behavior support teacher for elementary students. Awesome. So you're very familiar with utilizing the principles of behavior in your classrooms. Absolutely. (laughs) So you post a lot about utilizing different instructional strategies in your classroom. So you just want to talk about some of like your favorite go-to instructional strategies and kind of how they relate to ABA. Yeah, absolutely. So first, I want to say, you know, don't be afraid of utilizing a direct instruction curriculum. The direct instruction framework is rooted in evidence and research and has ABA principles um, embedded in it. I use a math curriculum with my students, standards aligned. It's a direct instruction curriculum. It has prompt fading built into the lesson structure. It is a really phenomenal tool and I can still put my own spin on it. I know that people don't like them because they're scripted, but the way that you present that script is what makes it unique for your students. So I, that's the, my very first tip is don't be afraid of that. But also I love using task analyses to really break down those really complex skills, especially in math um, and to really hone in on where the students are struggling within those complex 
math processes. Awesome. And and you mentioned prompt fading. That is so important in our work is that we don't want our students to be prompt dependent and direct instruction programs sometimes have really great prompt fading strategies already built into them. So direct instruction is for those of you who don't know a whole lot about direct instruction, it is a principle that is rooted in the principles of behavior analysis, or I should say an intervention that is rooted in the principles of behavior analysis and an evidence-based practice that just has a very, um, strategic and systematic way of teaching a specific skill. And you utilize it a lot for math, you said. Yes. And what kind of uh, ABA strategies do you use for reading? So I currently don't teach reading. Our program is departmentalized. So I'm the math and science teacher, um, which I just love being yes, I'm the also a VCBA. So, you know, it kind of goes hand in hand. But when I was in the behavior support program, I did teach all subjects. And um, I had students that were learning to decode, um, learning their letters, learning sounds. So, I mean, obviously you can use discrete trial training um, in that repetition and to teach them sight words, letters, sounds, anything like that. But we also would do, um, when they were learning to decode, like CVC words, so words like cat, we would use errorless teaching and um, error correction procedures in that in a small group environment. So I could present it, you know, to the whole group and then have one of my students decode. And if they made an error, I could run through the error correction procedure. And then I could do another one and pres- have another kid do that. And so you can use the that strategy within a small group setting as well. That's so cool. And, and that also helps with like a little bit of the prompt fading too. If you're doing like DTT style instruction, you can start fading that back as well so that we're getting more into that like functional academics where they're, we're learning more independence. And that's the goal for students with academics, behaviors, and social emotional skills is that they become really independent in their classroom and, and in the community at large where we're able to teach those functional skills and they're able to take those and be really independent because we don't want them to always be prompt dependent on us. And, and for people that are in the classroom and they might not see a skill transfer from a small group environment, what advice do you have for them so that they can see the skill like in, in specials or in the hallway or maybe in someone else's classroom? Do you have any like go-to strategies that you utilize to generalize those skills? Yeah. Uh, well, we're always practicing pretty much everywhere we go. So I'm really trying to plan for generalization from the very beginning. I said, I would say is probably my biggest tip. So know how you're, you're going to get them from that one-on-one or small group environment into that larger setting. It's going to be really critical and key. And then, you know, I think that the biggest challenge is we don't give kids enough wait time. So we're immediately always jumping in and prompting almost immediately. And we're not giving them the chance to perform the skill on their own. And I would say my biggest example of that would be um, the Chromebooks. Like we're all, we're a one-to-one now um, with our kids. And last year we didn't really use any technology. We had one-to-one iPads, but we just didn't really use them. And this year we got Chromebooks. And we were like, gosh, we got to teach these kids how to use Chromebooks and Schoology because what if we go remote again? We can't do what we did in the spring. And 
it was a struggle. Like the kids, you know, all of our kids have intellectual disabilities. So we're talking about kids that are, you know, typically going to have and need more support when it comes to navigating and learning those things. And um, we had to talk with our paras over and over and over again, give them a chance, give them a chance. Like you can show them where to click, but don't do it for them. Give them the opportunity to learn it. And every single one of our kids is navigating those devices independently now. That's awesome. And that, that like, kind of summarizes everything we just talked about, right? You provide that like direct instruction piece or like that's little D direct instruction where you're showing them how to do it. And then you are prompting, but then you're also prompt fading and making sure that our students are independent. Um, I love that example because technology is really hard and it's really easy for us as adults to like step in and do it, right? It's easy for us to like jump in and just like help them. We don't want to see our students struggle. We don't want to see them get confused or overwhelmed, especially on technology and, and different devices when we are in a remote setting. But at the same time, that's not really helping them develop that skill, right? And those problem solving skills that come along with that trial and error piece of it and learning for themselves after we've modeled the behavior. Now, sometimes, you know, we do still have to prompt them. There are some kids that struggle a little more Right. What are okay? So, what are your strategies for prompt dependence? If you if you have a student who's prompt dependent, what are some things that you put in place to start rebuilding that contingency so that they start learning that skill more independently? Yeah, that is so hard. So it's definitely something I never really thought of as an elementary teacher. First of all, we start with a baseline um, latency data, um, which is collecting the amount of time from the instruction to when they in, engage in the task that has been presented. So we get that latency baseline. And then we start with reinforcing um, initiation on their own, but also um, fading back the amount of time or increasing the amount of time, sorry, um, between the task and um, the prompt. So you can almost do it like an errorless way. So you can say like, you know, click on the, math button and then you can like point to it and then reinforce them for doing it and then you can do it again but wait five seconds click on the math button wait five seconds and if they initiate then you get this huge amount of reinforcement versus if you have to prompt them you get a little less reinforcement mm -hmm. still reinforcing them because they did what they you asked them to do but it's just not as big of a celebration and reinforcer when they have to be prompted Right. Absolutely. And like strategies that I like to use are like transitioning from different prompts, right? So a lot of our students can be prompt dependent on verbal prompts yeah. and, and a lot of verbal instructions. And if at all possible, whenever I'm starting with a student, I try and avoid verbal prompts and just go right to picture prompts, gestural prompts, those types of prompts so that they're less intrusive. And it just depends on the kid. A lot of, some kids don't like it when you quote unquote call them out, right? So that they don't like their name being called. They don't like when you remind them to do something, they get frustrated with that. So if you use a visual or gestural prompt, it can be easier for them to be reminded and then also to fade that out. But sometimes verbal prompts are necessary, but I like your strategy and how you explain that and how you can start fading out some of those verbal prompts is just giving like more space and time between the prompt and like a subsequent prompt and then providing a lot of reinforcement for the initial Initiation towards a specific task that we're asking them to do and 
that can be any type of initiation, right? Like the smallest step towards completing that task is what we want to really reinforce so that we build that scale of that initiation step piece of it because that's where we kind of see that lagging scale and when we have a student that's propped up dependent is that initiation of a task and because once they initiate it they can they can complete the task also the other piece of it is making sure that the students have a functional way of requesting help or needed attention and so that's just another piece to the puzzle of that prompt dependency is they maybe are sitting there waiting because they don't know how to ask for help. Yeah, that is such a great point. It's teaching functional communication skills with all of this. Um, and, and especially when we're like, just to kind of like relate it a little bit back to academics is some of our students will avoid tasks or present like they don't want to do a task because they don't know how to ask for help. They become overwhelmed. They don't know what to do next, whatever it might be. They don't know how to initiate that task. And we haven't given them an appropriate way to ask for help. Um, and so some of their their behaviors of asking for help is just sitting and waiting till because they've learned that people will just come help them. So I love that you that you mentioned that is teaching a functional communicative response to asking for help, whatever that looks like for your student, whether it's a sign, a verbal response, utilizing an AAC device, whatever it might be. Um, that is going to be key to that Absolutely. overall academic success of our students. So do you have any other tips that you want to share with teachers who, let's say they're a new teacher and they're starting out in a functional academic classroom similar to yours, like what are some tips that you can give them for some instructional strategies or just really teaching those academic skills in a really evidence-based way, utilizing the principles of behavior, of course? Yeah, so I would say um, definitely look into some of the research and information out there on task analyses and error correction procedures. Those are the two that I use the very most and then prompt fading, but also like don't do it all at once. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Take one strategy that you really want to implement and get really good at it, become an expert on it, practice it, use it in your daily instructional practices, write it into your lesson plans, plan for it, and then you can add in the next one. I certainly didn't get here all at once. <laughs> um, a lot of this was um, through my supervision experience, which was in a, almost an entire school year. And so, and even beyond that. So for sure, don't think that you have to do it all at once because you definitely don't. That's such great advice because it can be really overwhelming to tackle new instructional strategies, especially if you see the need in your classroom to want to do it all at once. And then you're kind of doing pieces of each at once, as opposed to really getting um, like good at one and then implementing that one and then moving on to the next one. That's great advice. And because there's a lot of teachers that listen to this that think about getting their BCBA, do you have any advice or anything if a teacher is on the fence about getting their BCBA or anything that you learned the process of getting your BCBA as a teacher? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely transformational for my instructional practices. I am definitely not the same teacher I was when I started the process. I have learned so much about behavior and learning and instruction. And I think that it's really beneficial, even if you don't go through the whole process, but if you want just more information on ABA, doing a master's degree, if that's like something that you want to do is to have a master's degree, doing it in ABA. And then you can decide later on if you want to go through the full process or not, because just the coursework itself, 
helped me so much. And then making sure that you have a really good mentor and supervisor is also going to be critical because you don't want somebody that's just going to sign off on your hours and and that's that. You want somebody that's really going to challenge you and push you to grow in areas that are not what you are already an expert in. For example, when I started my supervision, I was in my fifth year as a behavior support teacher. So I had a lot of knowledge already about how to be in that program and run that program. So we focused a lot more on the instructional piece and finding ways that I could learn and grow in that area versus just implementation and writing behavior plans because I already did that. Yeah, absolutely. And and people have heard me say this a couple of times. I'm just going to repeat it in case if this is the first episode you're listening to. If you're a teacher, and especially in special education, and you're looking to get a master's or you're interested in the BCBA, I highly recommend taking a free um, RBT course because there's a lot of free ones out there that just kind of explain the basic principles. And it just it'll just let you know if that's something that you're interested in or you will be able to get some information about those basic principles and see how how you can apply it to your classroom. And if you decide to go further with it, you definitely want to f- try and find a really great supervisor. Hopefully if you're going to stay in schools with school experience so that they kind of know the um, dynamics of a school, because it is different than home-based care, right? Um, oh, for sure. You're, you um, provide home-based care um, as well. And, and it's very different from school to home to clinic. So if you have a supervisor that's just used to home-based care, it might not be as beneficial if you can find someone that does have some school-based experience. Yes. My my supervisor was actually the district BCBA at the time. So she was in my classroom regardless of whether she did my supervision or not, which was really nice. But she also did encourage me to seek out the home-based therapy position that I currently have because there are just some things that you can't get in the school system as well or within certain positions. For example, verbal behavior. So learning about mans and tacks and things like that, which is like requesting and labeling. My kids weren't working on those things. <laughs> um, and so having that um, outside position also helped as well. And I think made me a more well-rounded um, teacher and BCBA. So definitely that's another thought to consider as well if you're thinking about going that route. Yeah, I feel like our stories are so similar because I had so much school-based experience. I too lacked the verbal behavior piece of it. And when I was getting my hours, I was um, did some hours at like a center-based program for individuals with autism and really got that verbal behavior piece of it. Use like a lot of AAC devices and signs and like all these different alternative modes of communication that I feel make definitely make me a better school-based practitioner than if I never had those experiences just because they didn't come up in the positions that I was in in a school setting. Exactly. And especially if if you're wanting to um, potentially work as um, like a behavior specialist like yourself, you're going to be supporting more programs than just the one that you're currently working mm-hmm. in. So if you don't have that experience, then that's definitely something that you're going to want to have if you want that kind of a position in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was so great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. If you don't already follow Cassie, her handle is Adventures in Behavior. Do you have any other places that you post on or that people can follow you on or get more information about the strategies you use in your classroom? 
Yeah, um, I'm also on Facebook, um, Adventures in Behavior. I have a Pinterest um, that I pin all sorts of things to, not just school-related, ABA-related, find recipes and all sorts of other things on there, but it's also Adventures in Behavior. I am in the process of revamping my blog, um, so eventually it'll be back up, so follow my social media to see what the that will look like and what the web address will be when that comes back up. And then I also have a Teachers Pay Teacher store, Adventures in Behavior, and I do have um, some products that will help you um, if you're wanting to try to start implementing some of those processes like I talked about with the, the math task analyses and that sort of thing. All right, everyone, that's all we have for you today. I'm hoping you take so many of these amazing strategies away from this episode and start using ABA principles as you're teaching academics. And you take away some of Cassie's amazing advice about getting your BCBA if you're ever thinking about getting your BCBA as a special education teacher or even as a general education teacher. Any questions about it, feel free to message me over on Instagram at Teaching Behavior Together or send Cassie a message over at Adventures in Behavior. I'm sure she'd be happy to answer any of your questions about getting your BCBA or any other questions you have about utilizing the principles of ABA as you teach academics in your classroom. Also, if you're struggling to implement different interventions in your classroom, I have a free guide in the description that is completely geared toward implementing behavioral interventions in your classroom. So if you are interested in that, click on the link in the description and it'll be in your inbox very shortly. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of the day.